All right, Acts chapter 20, uh, starting at verse 1. For those of you that are visiting, um, we do preach through the Bible uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and uh, we take a book of the Bible and work our way through it that way. And we are in the book of uh, Acts, and we find ourselves today uh, in Acts chapter 20. So that's how we're here. It's not something that I just picked out of a hat. Gerald would like me to do that, but I, I ignore him. I don't do that. And there's many other things that I ignore from Gerald so that we can just keep on the straight and narrow. No, Gerald. It's okay. It's okay. We're, pr- we're praying for you. You stay here. No, Gerald has been with me for 20 years. I'm in my 21st year of pastoring here. And Gerald and Jan have been with me every step of the way. As a matter of fact, they were here before I got here. And so Gerald and Jan are uh, great and precious friends, which is why we make so much fun out of one another. Right, Gerald? (laughs) All right, so this chapter that we're about to read is really the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey. He has set his heart for Jerusalem, and he wants to arrive there for the Feast of Pentecost. And before he did that, he is going to take a, basically a trip around the Mediterranean. He is going to go up the coast of Turkey where he established some churches. He is going to take a ship over to Macedonia, which is northern Greece. He's going to visit the churches. He is going to go down to Corinth where he's going to spend three months in Corinth, where incidentally while he is there, he's going to write the book of Romans. And then he is going to trace his trip, his uh, route back up through to northern Greece, once again back over to the west coast of Turkey, and then he is going to basically head for Jerusalem. So that's the context of this chapter. So, verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. And he stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Asia in the Bible is just another region actually of modern day Turkey. Also, Aristocharus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and uh, Trump, Trump, that guy, of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Now, on the first day of the week, When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. I am not going to do that. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. 
Now, when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So, the Bible tells us that this is basically Paul's farewell journey to many of the Gentile churches that he had planted in Turkey and in Greece. And he is basically stopping along the way. He is encouraging them. He probably also has taken up an offering, which is why there are so many guys mentioned in our text, uh, because he wanted probably accountability and integrity uh, to deliver this gift to the church in Jerusalem that had fallen on hard times. Now, the Bible tells us here in verse 1, after the uproar had ceased. What uproar are we talking about? The uproar that uh, Marcus had talked about last week in chapter 19, where there was a revival happening in the city of Ephesus, and uh, people were getting very agitated by it because it was cutting into the economy of sin. People stopped worshipping the idol Diana and therefore ceased buying statues, jewelry, carvings, necklace, earrings, and anything associated with pagan worship. And on top of that, they took all of their books, which would have been worth in today's currency, what was it? $12 million. $12 million. And uh, it was a lot of money. And it was putting a lot of people out of work who were in the economy of sin. And the reason why there was an uproar is because the gospel was changing people from the inside out. And because the truth was setting people free, their inner attitudes and desires were now becoming holy. And they were seeking the things that pertain to God rather than these idols that they used to worship. And it was changing their spending habits. So they were no longer spending their money on idols, but they were actually burning these things. And their spending habits had changed dramatically. And you know that if the gospel can change or touch a person's wallet, you know that God is definitely at work in that person's life. Because as they say, a lot of people sit on their heart. Now... As a side note, that's why we have an offering box at Calvary Chapel Kelowna. Because we want people to know that giving is a grace. It is a work of God's spirit where we want people to give freely to the Lord and not under compulsion. That giving is a delight and a desire rather than a duty. So before Paul left uh, the Ephesians, He calls the disciples, he embraces them, then he goes on this tour, and then he's going to come back to them. And so, basically what Paul is doing on this journey is that he is on a journey of encouragement. He is going back to the churches that have already been established in the first and second missionary journeys, and he is going back to encourage the people that he has personally won to the Lord and all of the people that have come to the Lord since then and he wants to encourage them. And you know, encouragement is a great thing 
in a person's life. The Bible talks a lot about encouragement. Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The Bible says that we are to encourage one another daily as we battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you're doing. Throughout the Bible, we see many instructions to encourage one another. And these verses that we've just read are meant to encourage us. Now, why is encouragement so important in the Bible? Primarily because encouragement is necessary to our walk of faith. It's necessary to our walk of faith. As a matter of fact, we have met one of the great encouragers already in the book of Acts, a guy by the name of Barnabas. And actually, Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And what a blessing Barnabas was to the early church in his day and to Paul personally. Through the encouragement of Barnabas, the apostle Paul was first accepted by the church in Jerusalem. Through the encouragement of Barnabas, Mark was given a second chance after failure. Uh, through the encouragement of Barnabas, Christians were exhorted, taught, and encouraged through persecution and hard times to follow the Lord. Now listen, we all know that being a Christian does not exempt us from trials and sufferings. As a matter of fact, Peter told us that we shouldn't be surprised by the fiery trial that comes upon us. Being Christians does not give us an exemption card from a sin-sick world and all of the effects that it has brought upon the human experience. But encouragement makes it easier for us to live in a fallen world. Encouragement makes it easier for us to love as Jesus loved the world. Encouragement gives us hope when we feel discouraged. Encouragement helps us through times when the Lord disciplines and tests his children. Encouragement nurtures patience and kindness. Encouragement makes it easier to sacrifice our own desires for the advancement of God's kingdom. In short, encouragement helps us to live the Christian life. And without encouragement, we would be discouraged. And life would sometimes feel pointless and burdensome. Sometimes without encouragement, we'd be overwhelmed by the very real pains and trials that come into our life. Without encouragement, we can feel unloved for and uncared for. Without encouragement, we can think that God is a liar and he is not concerned about our welfare or what's going on in our life. I can tell you that if you are discouraged right now, you probably have your eyes upon the source of your discouragement rather than on the God who encourages. I, as a pastor, have gotten to know discouragement very well. As a matter of fact, he's a very good friend of mine. I don't like him, but he just won't go away. The one thing that I've learned about being discouraged in the ministry is that if I get a moment of clarity, which is not that often, but when I get the odd moment, 
I realize that the source of my discouragement is always looking at the wrong criteria. I'm always looking at people, or I'm looking at my circumstances, or I'm looking at something and I just go, it's hopeless and it's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible, and God is a great encouraging God. So if you feel discouraged today, I get it. I know exactly how you feel, but I would encourage you, <laughs> get it? I would encourage you to ask yourself where your eyes are looking and what your hope is set upon. Now the Bible tells us to encourage one another and to remind each other of the truth that God loves us and that God will equip us and that we are treasured and that our struggles are worth it because God will even use our trials and pain to paint a beautiful masterpiece of his grace. Encouragement from the Bible gives us the will to carry on. It's a glimpse of the bigger picture. It can prevent burnout. It can save us from believing lies and sin's deceitfulness. Encouragement helps us to experience the abundant life that the Lord Jesus has come to give us. Now, uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie about, uh, what's his name? Uh, Fred Rogers? Mr. Rogers, what is it? It's a wonderful day in the neighborhood. In the movie there's a scene that's very powerful. He's trying to he's trying to help a journalist that has had a very bad relationship with his father. And as a result, this uh, journalist has become bitter, unforgiving, very cynical, and he's got a big chip on his shoulder. And he's sitting in a restaurant with Mr. Rogers and he says, you know, there's something I like to do. You know how he talks, I don't know how he talks. But anyways, he says, why don't we just take a moment of silence and think about everybody that's encouraged us in our life. You know, I thought that's really good wisdom. I'd encourage you to think about how God has encouraged you in your life and the people that he's brought into your life at times where you've needed encouragement. The person that he sent your way. The so-called circumstance that just happened to cross your path. That verse from the scriptures that just jumped off the page and into your heart and God sealed it to you. Because God is an encouraging God and he loves to encourage people. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 31.8 and the Lord, he is the one who goes before you he will be with you. He will not leave you, or uh, he will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Joshua 1, 8 to 10. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And this is, this is just, this isn't even dipping your toe into the ocean when it comes to looking at all the scriptures that give encouragement to God's people. And you know what? I love people that are encouraging people, don't you? It's just like a breath of fresh air has blown into the room and you don't know what's happened to you. You don't know where they've gone. It's like you've been in a whirlwind, but you just feel refreshed. What, in what integral parts these people play in the body of Christ who come along and encourage you. Encourage you when, they're just, when you're just in their presence. How wonderful that is compared to people who are negative and discouraging. Man, you can be in the presence of someone that's negative and discouraging for five minutes and you think it's midnight. Man, don't you think it's time to go? Honey, it's only 7.30. They got here at 7.15. Yeah, well, I'm tired. After encouraging people, leave, you feel like you've had a spiritual facelift. You feel renewed and revived and you feel like praising and serving God. So this is what Paul is doing. He's establishing these people with encouragement. Now, he makes his way back, and he ends up uh, back where he started. And it says, now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Eutychus, sitting up on the third floor, falls asleep, falls down, dead on arrival Paul goes down and throws himself on him and says fret not he's just sleeping picks him up takes him back in and preaches till dawn I'd like to just kind of point out a few things verse 7 it says they met on the first day of the week you know the first day of the week is when the early church began to actually come together for church was on the first day of the week. Now, we know that on the Jewish calendar, the Jews worshipped on the Sabbath, which is the seventh day of the week. And if you go to Israel and you stay in a hotel, they have Sabbath elevators, which means that they program the elevator to stop on every floor because it's against Sabbath regulations to actually press the button. It's considered work. You don't want to get on that elevator. They have Gentile elevators, Donna. That's the one you want to get in on Friday. Where's Donna and Kelly? Oh, they'll be here in an hour. In the book of Acts, we see again and again, Paul went and evangelized on the Sabbath in the synagogue, but on the first day of the week, the church came together for worship. Now, a lot of people get excited about which day of the week, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, except that the Bible says that they came together on the first day of the week. Paul says in Romans 14:5, one man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, we're to worship God every day of our week. And if you, if you want to get excited about Saturday, then worship on Saturday, but don't be Debbie Downer and put it on us. 
Amen? Amen. That's all I got to say about that, Gerald. Now, the second thing I'd like to point out in this verse is warning. Falling asleep in church could be hazardous to your health. You heard about the wife that was exasperated with her husband because he kept falling asleep during the pastor's sermon? Once again, they're in church, and the husband just nods right off to sleep. Exasperated, she takes off one of her high heel shoes and just nails her husband right over the head and wakes him up. The husband jolted from his sleep, realizing what the wife has done, cries out, hit me again, I can still hear him. So this young man fell down, and uh, you have a, just a miraculous miracle where Paul goes down and falls on him, and, and God brings him back to life. All right. Let's go on here to verses 13 to 16. With the remaining time, I want to talk to you today about the greatest pastor's conference that is ever held. Besides Jesus teaching his disciples, this is the greatest pastor's conference that was ever held in the Bible, and I believe that this is the greatest pastor's conference that's ever been held in history. It says in verse 13, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos. They're intending to take Paul on board, so, uh, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot and when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios, or Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and arrived at Trogilium, and the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail to Ephesus, sail past Ephesus, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul is basically coming back now, and he is going to meet the disciples that he was traveling with down in Miletus, which is just a little south of the city of Ephesus. It says that some of them sailed, but Paul decided to walk. It was a 22-mile journey. And I don't know why Paul decided to walk, but maybe he just was clearing his head and having a prayer walk, a 22-mile prayer walk. And I've talked to many people who love to walk and pray. And maybe this is what Paul was doing. The Bible doesn't tell us, but that's what he decided to do. So now he comes, and he is going to meet with the Ephesian leaders, the elders, the pastors of the Ephesian church, where he had spent three years of his life ministering and teaching the gospel. There are three parts to this conference. There is a review of Paul's past ministry in Ephesus in verses 18 to 21. Secondly, there is an explanation of the present ministry situation that Paul is going to face in verses 22 to 27. And then there is going to be an instruction for these shepherds of what they should do in the future, verses 28 to 35. Past, present, and future. Let's look at Paul's 
present ministry in Ephesus in verses 18 to 21. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. I would just like to say that if you're in leadership, one of the prerequisites of being in leadership is when you're called to serve and show up, you need to, you need to show up. Pretty sure all of these guys had families and jobs. And Paul called for them to come, 22 miles, to come and meet with them. It wasn't like hopping on a fast train. It wasn't like driving your car. It was a 22-mile hike down there to meet with Paul. And one of the things that elders and leaders and anyone serving in ministry is that when you're scheduled to serve, you must show up and serve. When you're called, come. When you don't come, nothing happens. Oh, I'm not doing any good, you know. I don't know if I should. Well, I can tell you one thing. If you don't show up, nothing's going to happen. But if you do show up, something's going to happen. And if you don't feel like you're any good, God's got the right person because it's not about you. It's about God. So fall on your face and ask God to use you and you're off to a good start. Verse 18, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, again, Asia, modern-day Turkey, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught to you publicly and from house to house. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to go through these verses and I'm going to give to you seven points in my own language of what I think leadership and serving God looks like for a Christian. Now history doesn't lie. When looking back at the last three years of his life with these Ephesians, Paul simply states to them two words, you know, you know. What did they know? He says, you know that I was with you for three years and you know that my words and my life were on full display for you to see. You know that you had every opportunity to see me live and to teach among you. And what did they know about watching and listening to Paul? Verse 18, you know in what manner I always lived among you. In other words, his conduct was in full view of the people that he ministered to. He's saying, you know what I said, but you also know how I walked. You know that my conversation and my words and my conduct were in complete harmony with one another. I didn't say one thing and live another way. What I preached to you, I also lived. And this is crucial to the integrity of a leader and having influence with people. Point number one, our lives must live out what we say we believe in our hearts. The other thing that they knew, verse 19, beginning, he says, that I serve the Lord with all humility. 
Part-time humility does not work in leadership. Little bits of humility do not work in the Christian life. Now, I'm in my 21st year here as a pastor by the grace of God. You've had a lot of time to see me and to hear me, and you know one thing about me. Pray for Dale. He's an idiot. I don't say that facetiously. I know it's true. I'm a fool for Christ. I don't profess to have all the gifts or all the knowledge. But the one thing that I have sought to do is to be consistent in that what I say, I also practice. Part-time integrity doesn't work in leadership. It doesn't work in your Christian life either. Eventually, the Lord leads each and every one of his servants to all humility. Not part-time humility. To all humility. Because it's not our agenda and it's not our cause that we serve or we promote. It's not our preferences that we get to choose what we like and what we don't like from the Bible or from serving the Lord. It's all humility because we serve the Lord and we serve his agenda. And to serve the Lord's agenda requires all humility. It's his work in his way because we serve the Lord and his people. And I, from personal experience, have experienced and continue to experience and enjoy the divine work of the Holy Spirit sandpaper in my life. Which leads me to point number two. Personal agendas will be exposed and graciously dealt with by the Lord, but they will be dealt with. Personal agendas will be exposed and firmly dealt with, but graciously, by the Lord. Paul says, You know also that I was among you with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, good news stirs up bad press. Paul proclaimed, taught, and discipled, not because everything was falling into place, but rather the exact opposite, through great difficulties, not the absence of them. Through many tears, he continued the work of God. And he is telling the Ephesian leaders, in spite of the trials and the tears that the Jews brought upon me as I preached the gospel, I did not turn back from what God called me to do in spite of what was happening to me. Point number three, expect opposition and don't quit. Verse 20 and 21, he says, you know that I, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want a 
pastoral mission statement? Do you want a training paradigm to raise anybody up to be a leader in the church? Here it is in verse 20 and 21. You couldn't improve on it. There is so much to say in these verses, uh, and I will try to be brief, uh, and here's what I will say about these verses. Number one, a pastor, a leader of a church that proclaims to believe the Bible and preach the Bible, he must have full confidence and conviction that God's Word is, in fact, God's Word. And his conviction is that the Word of God is just not one of many options that people should hear when they go to hear him, but it is the only thing that they should hear from him when he preaches and teaches. Amen? A pastor and a preacher that is worth their salt, he wants to know the mind of God, he desires to know the Word of God, and he will not hold back anything that is helpful for the people of God in it. The second thing is, is not only must he have the confidence and conviction that God's Word is, in fact, God's Word, he must have the courage to proclaim it. Privately, Paul spoke it to the believers. Publicly, he proclaimed it to the crowds. And the pastor that is a faithful shepherd declares the absolute foundation and bedrock of what the Bible is all about from beginning to end, and he is steadfastly courageous to tell people the good news and all the news that is in all of the Bible. Why do we do what we do at Calvary Chapel? Because we believe that all the Bible is all the Word of God. We don't believe that you can cherry pick and choose that which you decide you like and what you don't like, but that all of God's Word is all of God's counsel and it is for all of God's people. Amen? Now, every word in the Bible is for us, but if you study prophecy and other things, you realize that not every word in the Bible is about us. But every word of God is for us. Now, what did Paul preach? He preached repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's nice. People don't want to hear that today. What's the problem? The problem is sin. You're telling me, a good person, that my problem is sin? Uh, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And we are telling you that you must have repentance towards God. You must change your mind, and you must put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you're telling me that when I die, that I'm not good enough to go to heaven? In a word, yeah. How offensive is the message of the cross? And then, not only that, 
the exclusiveness of the gospel message. You're telling me there's no other way to God? Well, if Jesus is the truth, yeah, there is no other way. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And if you believe on me, though, you should die, yet you shall live. So either Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was, or we proclaim a false gospel. Now, Paul went everywhere talking to good religious Jews who studied the scriptures every day and were in the synagogue reading the prophets. And Paul was telling them about repentance towards God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And they persecuted him and wanted to kill him. You see, the Bible will never make sense to anybody until they have repentance towards God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Because once that happens, then the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. And the Bible is no longer mysterious, it's a desire. It doesn't mean that we know everything and understand everything. That's never going to happen until we see Jesus. And I, you know, all the questions that you ever wanted to ask will be answered, I think. So point number four, a, person, a pastor must have both the conviction and the courage to believe and to proclaim all of God's word. In summary, we could say Paul talked that he had humility, compassion, endurance, boldness, and simplicity, which is not a bad set of characteristics on which to build a ministry. And he challenged the elders of the church at Ephesus to carry on the same work in the same way that he lived and in the same way that he taught. Now he's going to talk about the present, verses 22 to 27. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul's message to the Ephesians shifts from a description of how he lived and preached among them to now the present and immediate. <clears throat> and he said that he is going to go to Jerusalem bound by the Spirit and that he would see their face no more. He said that he'd be imprisoned and that there would be suffering that it's awaiting him. Now, Paul looked at through, uh, through a lens, uh, and it's, it's a lens that only Christians can look through at ultimate realities. He said, when I look at the present, when I prepare for the future, he said, I know what's ha going to happen in Jerusalem, but none of these things move me. Why? Because I have considered myself a dead man walking. I don't count my life dear to myself. 
The only thing that I want to do is I want to finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the grace of the grace of God. Paul's statements of priorities are an incredible perspective for any believer. Here's point number five. Self-preservation must be subservient to the faithful completion of the task the Lord Jesus has given a Christian. Paul used one of his favorite athletic pictures to illustrate what he meant. He said his life was a race to be run and a race that had to be finished. And he desired to finish the race and when he wrote his last will, which is basically the book of 2 Timothy, he said to Timothy, I have fought the good race. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. To preach a gospel of self-preservation or self-fulfillment is not only missing the point, it's a false message. The gospel is not here to accommodate sinful man's desires. It's here to confront them and save us from them. And in exchange, we find real life, real hope, real power that transcends the fickle and deceiving lusts of our culture and our hearts. Jesus has come to save us, not to entertain us. He has not come to amuse us or to pacify us. He has come to deliver us from our worn-out, sick hearts that need a complete makeover. The gospel should sound and look like a life preserver thrown to a drowning soul in a raging sea. He said in verse 25 to 27, I am innocent of all men's blood. He said, you know, now, uh, and indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day, listen to the impact and the power of these words. I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. This goes back to what Paul has just said in verse 20. You know that I have kept nothing back from you that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you. When a pastor, a leader, a friend has finished the course that God has given them to run, and it's time to say, Adios amigos and senoritas. For the very last time, the most important thing that could and should be said of a faithful shepherd is I told you all of God's word. Not just the parts I liked, not just left out the parts that were uncomfortable and confronting, and I have not shunned from fulfilling the call of God, which is to teach and to preach the whole counsel of God. And why wouldn't you? Why would you not teach and preach the whole counsel of God? Well, a few reasons I came up with is, first of all, unbelief. Pastors and teachers fill the pulpits today filled with unbelief. 
They don't really believe the whole counsel of God's word. So they don't bother teaching it. Or when they come to it, they make excuses for it. Or they undermine it. Or they give it some type of cultural twist to say, well, that doesn't really apply for us today. Secondly, cultural idolatry. I don't believe that all of God's word speaks to all of man's life. And you know what? If we start preaching this Bible, we're going to offend people. We're going to offend groups. Well, it's never my desire to be offensive to anyone. But if the word of God offends people, that's where I will take my stand. The third reason that I thought about is cowardice. I'm afraid what the Bible will say, or worse, I am afraid of what carnal Christians will think if I preach the whole Bible. Now, if you know me, it has been my desire to preach the Bible and to try to do it to the best of my ability. I am... I am... Uh, I am concerned... And I am deathly afraid of what's happening to the evangelical church today in the 21st century. The word evangelical, in my opinion, means nothing today. I've seen people claim the title evangelical and live exactly like the world. Their value system is the same. Their belief system is the same. They have no theology or doctrine to which they back up the things that they do. And we have people filling the pulpits that don't believe the word of God and they are calling themselves evangelical. And God is calling them out. God is calling people out of these places because they realize that there is a compromise and a cowardice that is happening and these things should not be. And in solemn declaration, Paul told these elders and pastors at Ephesus, he said, I did not shun from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And he said, I am innocent of all men's blood. I, I'm trying to make this as gracious and as encouraging as possible, but I don't know if anyone can say that about themselves today. But that is the desire of my heart, is to tell people the truth. And that doesn't mean that you have to do a full Nelson on them and pound them over the head. But it does mean that you should be so concerned about them that you're praying for strategies and openings so that you might graciously tell them all the truth. All of God's purposes that had been revealed to Paul, he taught to the people. Because he understood that there can be no true growth in Christ without the transmission of truth. And so we commit ourselves here at Calvary Chapel Kelowna to have a clear conscience before God and men to boldly speak all the counsel of God all the time and the word of God is our complete confidence and roadmap. Point number six, love God and love people enough to tell them the truth in love. 
love God, love people, love them enough to speak truth in love to them. And now finally, verses 28 to 35, he talks about future ministry challenges. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. This begins the final section of Paul's message to the elders of Ephesians. The tenses have changed from what Paul did to what he's doing and now to the word therefore, which is an action word, meaning in the light of everything that I've just told you, I now want you to do these things. And there are basically three charges that he's going to give in these verses. I want you to take heed, verse 28. I want you to shepherd the church, verse 28. And I want you to be watchful, verse 31. Take heed. The first thing he says is take heed to yourselves. And then secondly, then take heed to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. People who lead other people must take heed to themselves. They must be on the watch for themselves. They must be guarding their own heart and their own mind before they can lead anybody else. And the principle is this. As you take care of yourself in the Lord, so you are able to flock, or uh, you are able to shepherd the flock of God's people. God says it's the Holy Spirit who has made you overseers. The church is not the pastors. The flock belongs to God. It is an entity that God has bought literally, acquired or obtained with his own blood shed by Christ on the cross. And so point number seven is simple. The church belongs to God. It is not mine. It doesn't belong to anybody. The church is God's, not mine. No pastor is self-appointed. They are chosen and appointed by God to lead his people according to his will. Not my will, but his will, which is clearly given in the Bible, his word. They are to shepherd the flock. They are to, one, take heed to, they are to shepherd the flock. In John 10... The good shepherd is given to us as an illustration of Jesus. He gives his life for the sheep. In Hebrews 13:20, Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. In 1 Peter 2:25, Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And in 1 Peter 5:4, Jesus is the chief shepherd. And so Peter exalt, uh, exhorts pastors in 1 Peter 5:1-3, the elders who are among you. I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not being lords over them, uh, over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. These leaders were to be shepherds, they were to guide and direct and protect the sheep. Jesus said, feed my sheep, not fleece my sheep. Shepherds who don't like sheep aren't shepherds. 
So you're a shepherd, are you? Yup. Where are your sheep? Don't know. Can't stand them. Lastly, be watchful. He said, look, and I know that after my departure, savage wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. You know what? There has been, there is now, and there always will be savage wolves that come from outside and inside to devour the sheep of God. Have you ever seen a wolf attack a sheep? You ever seen what's left of the sheep? The sheep doesn't win. It's not a pretty sight. And that's the, the spiritual imagery that Paul is using to get the message across. Now, in the Bible, Satan is described as a cunning serpent, a lion who seeks... Uh, who goes about seeking whom he may devour. And now his agents or his emissaries as wolves seeking out the sheep of the flock. Now, wolves are false teachers. And they are not limited to the cults or to the past days of church history. They are among us today. And not only do they attack from without, but they rise up from among us and within us, which is really distressing. How can you recognize a false teacher? Well, they usually promote controversies instead of edifying and helping people come to Jesus. Two, they often, uh, they oft, uh, it is often initiated by those whose motivation is to make a name for themselves and money. Three, it will be contrary to the true teaching of Scripture. And so to protect yourselves from the deception of false teachers, you should have a faithful shepherd who teaches what the Bible says and remains steadfast, uh, uh, steadfast in its doctrines. Therefore, watch and remember, because I did it for three years among you. All right, so I'm going to close now. Paul says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, who is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Isn't that a beautiful benediction? I commend you to God and to the word of the grace. Uh, worship team, you can come on up and join me here. I commend you today to the word of God's grace because it is grace that will build you up and give you an inheritance in God's people. The message of God's grace is at the heart of all true gospel ministry. When people are confronted with sin, it's because God's grace could be received. When God's sheep are exhorted to live sanctified lives, it is so that God's grace may be appropriated and realized every minute of our existence. When we exhort you to run the race, it's because one day God's grace will not only save you and keep you, but will bring you home safely. Grace and truth, truth and grace. One needs the other. The other needs the other. They both need each other to fully do the work in our lives. It's not truth at the expense of grace, and it's not grace at the expense of truth. It's grace and truth, truth and grace.
So what would I say in conclusion to you today? Well, number one, be an encourager. Number two, sleeping in church could be dangerous to your health. Number three, all of every day of the week is the Lord's day, so live every day for God. And then seven points that I gave to you. Our lives must line up with what's coming out of our mouths. Number two, expect some Holy Spirit sandpaper applied to our agendas and ambitions. Number three, expect opposition, but don't quit. Number four, have the conviction and the courage to proclaim and believe all of God's word. Number five, we are God's servants, and we must be faithful to the task that the Lord has given us to do. Number six, love God and people. Love them enough to tell them the truth. And number seven, the church is God's. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Seal it and bless it to our hearts. Amen.